Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. The Church Times Book Club podcast is brought to you in association with the Festival of Faith and Literature. The 2023 festival, Mapping the Landscape, takes place in Winchester from Friday the 24th to Sunday the 26th of February. Speakers include Rowan Williams, Susanna Lipscomb, Francis Spufford and many others. To see a full programme and to buy tickets, visit faithandliterature.himsam.co.uk or just Google Festival of Faith and Literature. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast, and I'm in conversation today with the Reverend Dr. Rachel Mann, one of our freelance contributors, and we're going to be talking about the book we've chosen as this month's book club title. And this month's pick is a slim book called The Inseparables by the French writer Simone de Beauvoir. The book was published in 2021, but it was written much, much earlier, sometime in the 1950s, I think. And Rachel, I wonder if you could start, please, just by telling us a little bit about the story. And I think you have to do it in the same breath almost about its genesis, because it is semi-autobiographical. Yes. So essentially, the story of the inseparables is a story of friendship. It's about the friendship between two women, Sylvie and Andre, from about the age of nine until their early 20s. And it follows the evolving uh, nature of that friendship as they grow from being girls into young women set mostly in, in post-World War I France and their experience of being a, an elite uh, Catholic boarding school and then their initial experiences of, of stepping out into the teenage and then the adult world and in some ways the differing paths that they take. Uh, Sylvie who gives up on God, loses her faith, uh, is determined to be an independent intellectual, and Andre equally intelligent, but who lives a life dominated by her mother and her family's upper middle-class expectations. And the opportunity she has for education, but also the tragedy of her sense that she's going to be trapped into the classic expectations of young women in France at that time of getting married, but is unable to do that quite on her own terms. So it's a simple story of friendship. What I think adds this extra savour to it is that it's also the story of a very, very famous philosopher and novelist, Simone de Beauvoir. Sylvie is the stand-in for Simone, and Andre is the stand-in for her best friend, Jar Jar, who dies tragically young. Uh, I'm in danger of giving too many plot spoilers here, Sarah. But I, what we have here then is a, a simple, short, intense story of female friendship, but one which has this added weight because we are invited into many of the, the key autobiographical points of a woman 
in Simone de Beauvoir, who's had enormous influence on the mm. intellectual mm. life of the West. And I mean, you brought this book to our attention and suggested it for our book club, for which we're very grateful. And I wonder what it was that particularly appealed to you about it. Is it because you know and value the writings of Simone de Beauvoir? Is that where it came from, your interest in her philosophy? Well, in part, and let's start there. So uh, my first life, as it were, before uh, I was ordained was uh, as a teacher of of philosophy, uh, a student of philosophy, and I came across the work of Simone de Beauvoir through that, although it has to be said, and this tells you so much, Sarah, about uh, the teaching of philosophy, certainly in the late 80s and early 90s. Primarily, de Beauvoir was seen in the teaching that I received as a as an appendage, really, to the works of people like Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, whom she both knew, she knew both of them and indeed had a long relationship with Sartre. But uh, it was only when, I, I guess, my imagination was sparked into life by uh, discovering feminism in my early 20s that I then discovered the extraordinary writings of Simone de Beauvoir, most famously The Second Sex, which was published in 1949. But I think the second reason for selecting this novel is that it was suppressed for so very long, or if not suppressed, then was unavailable for so long. So it wasn't available in her lifetime. Uh, de Beauvoir attempted to write about Jar Jar on I think at least four occasions, and certainly um, she's featured in uh, the autobiography uh, that, that de Beauvoir uh, wrote. But much of the writing that de Beauvoir did about Jar Jar was destroyed. Now she kept this. Why? Mm. Uh, apparently Sartre was uncomfortable with this novel and, and didn't want it to be published. Uh, and there were certainly people around de Beauvoir who feel that it's too intimate because what, mm. what it does re reveal is the depth of de Beauvoir's passion for mm. her friend, Jar Jar, Elizabeth Lacoigne uh, Jar Jar. It's very interesting, isn't it? You've, I mean, the absolutely core to the book is, is this very intense friendship. And I think perhaps many of us can remember those sort of very passionate friendships, but they often, you know, they evolve into something else. This is very... Um, asymmetrical isn't it I mean Sylvie is so passionate about Andre what is it that you think particularly appealed I don't know if we should talk about Sylvie or Simone what was but what was it about Andre that so appealed to her do you think that sort of caused this this passionate devotion I, I think there are several factors I mean it's very clear from the outset of the novel that Sylvie, let's let's stick with Sylvie and you, we just accept that we're talking about Simone, yes. I guess, uh, that Sylvie is this precocious child, but she's also a very lonely child stuck mm. in this incredibly strict Catholic girls school. She's stifled. And then Andre appears. Andre, who'd nearly died in a fire, who'd been poorly, is, is undersized for her age and yet has this capacity to walk like an adult, I think uh, the, the novel says at one point, and who is not intimidated by yeah. the teachers, yeah. by these nuns. And 
And Simone, uh, Sylvie, gosh, I'm mixing the, <laughs> mixing the names up. Sylvie recognizes a, an intellectual equal, but there's an extra layer of mystery there as well. There's this, this sense of not only is Andre intellectually brilliant, but she has this aloof indifference, which Sylvie can only dream of. And this creates this, this mystique that only draws Sylvie in deeper. And there's this wonderful moment where Sylvie says it's as if nothing interesting had ever happened to her before. You know, suddenly, you know, it's as if all, I don't know, she suddenly sees the world in, in colour after, you know, only seeing it in black and white. But of course, there's a sort of irony there because it seems that Andre has a freedom because she doesn't care um, in some ways. And yet, and yet, and yet, hers is the life that is completely strangled by her mother's expectations. So she sort of has a freedom, but it's not actually quite the freedom that that Sylvie imagines, is it? Indeed. I think there's a kind of moving brittleness to Andre's seeming freedom. Mm. And of course, we don't realise that at first. And again, that's part mm. of the, the brilliance of the writing of this novel is that... Um, uh, because we are positioned so much through Sylvie's eyes and and Sylvie's emergence from childhood, we we only slowly begin to see the the curtains open, and then we discover that Andre is uh, is someone who clearly has a heart and a heart which is directed other than Sylvie's. Direction. I mean, there's this extraordinary uh, thing in the novel in which the two girls refer to each other as vu rather than two. Yeah. So that there's a sense in which there's a lack of intimacy, which shows that there's a perhaps some kind of wall between them. And then Sylvie discovers, I think to her shock and dismay, that Andre loves this boy. Yeah. And but uh, Andre's mother, who is very clear on what the duty and the demands are on on a Catholic upper middle class young woman, has separated them. And this 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 sadness, this void. I think Syl Syl Sylvie comes across as someone who's apps. I mean, is knocked sideways by discovering that what she already knew in her heart, that she wasn't the ap absolute epicentre of Andre's life, but then discovers this desperation in the midst of the person who is the ap absolute epicentre of her life. And I find that so moving. Yes, I agree. And and I think you've touched on something very important about it, which is the way we see this very childlike view of her friend and then the gradual realisation, which I think... I think the author does that brilliantly in a very few pages, really, where, you know, she sort of thinks she knows her and then, you know, things are sort of moving. It's the mother is, <laughs> is extraordinary, isn't she? There's this wonderful expression, you know, join a convent or get a husband. Remaining unmarried is not a vocation. And this is this is the whole purpose of her being, isn't it? That, that Andre should marry and marry well. And I think, again, there's this awful moment of realisation for Sylvie when she just realises Andre's mother doesn't like her. And that's incredibly painful, isn't it? I mean, you know, the bit, um, tell us about the needlework bit, because I thought that was that was acutely painful. 
you know when she so, made so this is yeah so um and i i'm gonna get this out of order here who it's it's that andre has made this needlework for sylvie is that right or is the other no, way Sylvie's around yes, made it for andre and she's she's she really struggles she's not a natural um you know that's she's not right. she's not good at sewing but she decides she wants to make something beautiful for um for andre as a sort of quite clearly a token of love and adoration so she stitches this thing and her mother you know sees this and and just decides and it's, and it's just not good enough it's just it's sort of it's it's yeah. kind of a sort of cast cast aside and um and just sort of inappropriate at sort yes. of lots of, of different levels so it's very sort of complicated there isn't it well gosh i i'm i've just i've lost my me getting confused on the order of that. That's why I've, I've now lost my thoughts entirely, <laughs> which is actually entirely, entirely fine. I think, I, I think the thing about Madame Galar, which, again, it, it, we we only discover quite late in in the novel, if memory serves, is Sylvie's recognition that this woman, who a doesn't like Sylvie, but b is still prepared to use Sylvie mm-hmm. as a prop in her own plans to manoeuvre Andre so that she's in the place of being uh, with suitable men, that Sylvie recognises that, oh gosh, perhaps once upon a time, Madame, Madame Galar herself actually had a, her own inner life that she has offered in... A kind of sacrificial submission mm-hmm. to this monstrous twin reality, one of which is is marriage according to very particular uh, conventions, but also to the expectations of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And I think that does generate a certain degree of understanding and, and sympathy, but nonetheless, we're left in a situation where because of the choices that Madame Gallard has made and wishes to make for Andre, our, our sympathy for her is 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 kind of wiped out. We just can't go there. Because she's made choices that have made her incredibly unhappy, um, yes. but she still wants to inflict them on her daughters, doesn't she? It's, a, yes. it's a, I think that's quite a hard idea for modern modern readers in some ways. It seems extraordinary to us. I mean, very much of its time, I guess. It's just we're talking about sort of just after the Great War, aren't we? But that seems very, very alien, I, I felt, as a modern reader. It, it does. And, I mean, I suspect that, it, I mean, even to someone reading in the 60s, there might have been uh, questions and concerns about it. I think, I think the other side of it, Sarah, which I think is really fascinating, is how Sylvie Simone is in one sense liberated from those particular kind of pressures. And certainly, I mean, this is where having a certain amount of autobiographical detail is really helpful because my my it is covered in the novel in in passing, is um the 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 de Beauvoir family were you know good bourgeois Parisian folk but they became poorer over time. Yeah. And we do get that sense in the, the story that they're sort of sort of heading down yes. the social class. But because Simone didn't have the kind of money to provide mm-hmm. a dowry, 
curiously that offers a, 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 a strange sort of liberation yes. which is kind of ironic for us I mean and again it's in a sense there's a sort of alienness to that and I sorry I, I I'm thinking out loud here but I'm thinking how often for young people these these days and I'm thinking of friends young friends of mine who want to pursue the life of of the mind the life of the arts and culture unless they've got money behind them, in fact, a sort of trust fund where they can do two years of unpaid internship, they're not going to get there. Whereas, ironically, for Sylvie Simone... Yes, it's the other way around. It's, yeah. it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Um, and I think, again, that sort of touches on the complexity of the whole thing. So you've got, you've got sort of Andre at one level desperate to do things differently, and yet she's also desperate not to disappoint her mother, so she's fighting these expectations, but completely enthralled to them as well. And there's this one awful moment. I, I can't remember. I don't know if you can remember whether this bit was autobiographical, but I don't think it would spoil anything to say. There's an awful, awful bit in this very um, intense summer where, you know, uh, Andre's mother is definitely looking for husbands for her daughters. And Andre actually she injures herself in a really quite a graphic and horrible way. She she takes an axe and, you know, drives it into her foot just to get some peace and quiet and to, and to be removed from this awful situation. And I, you know, I thought that was, that was very shocking. Just to say in terms of the autobiographical stuff, I don't know, Sarah, no. if that happened, but you're right. Such is the curious, there's, there's a, there's a almost stately quietude, about this novel and I mean it has that uh, you know that sort of sense of of uh, particularly at that point in the novel this sort of stifling heat and mm -hmm. there's a stifling world and and yet then in the woodshed <laughs> chopping wood this injury which I, I don't mind saying that when I read that, I, I just had to put the novel down mm -hmm. for a while. And and curiously, I mean, I've read some incredibly gruesome novels over the years and um and not done that. It's the the stately quietude of the novel which makes this one single incident so shocking. And of course, part of the shock value beyond just gosh, I mean, I can't imagine putting a, an axe into my foot, but is that we immediately understand at a visceral level that this isn't just about Andre getting a bit of peace and quiet. This is this is like a moment in psychodrama. It's a sort of yes. psychodrama moment. It's a scream almost. It's it, She has to inflict a wound on herself in order to both register the, a sort of scream at the, at, at the world where She's been holding it all together, mm -hmm. but also it it takes that level of violence to create a breakage between her and her mother. I mean, this yes. is psychodynamic stuff. It's extraordinary. And yet, and does it, I mean, I don't know, looking back, do you think that's the beginning? Is that the sort of turning point? I mean, it comes quite well into the book. Or is that is that actually, I mean, there's a bit of a sense where it doesn't make enough difference to me. You know, she does this very dramatic, very dramatic gesture and shocking as you say we should say to readers it's not it's not sort of graphically horrible no. to read but it is as exactly as you say it's profoundly shocking I had that same sense of oh right you know just wanting to to walk away for a bit but in a sense I don't know is that is that when you know this is going to end terribly or is that a sort of 
scream in a in a kind of awful vacuum that doesn't get heard i'm not sure i think my instinct is to say that it it acts as as a a kind of signal point uh, a a moment where we simply cannot be in denial about this being a story a tragic story mm-hmm. rather than one with some kind of root out i think for those those of us who've been paying attention we will be at see the clues long before that and almost i mean dare one say it from from the outset i mean looking back i mean i'm just reflecting on it now that almost adult aloofness which andre displays from the moment she enters the classroom mm-hmm. i mean is that a token of her trying to claim some kind of space for herself in the midst of a of a life where she really has had no control up until yeah. then she was almost almost died in a fire she's been very poorly she's been educated at home and and i mean i i mean that clearly isn't the crisis moment but there is a that moment when we realize that Andre's love for the young man whose name escapes me now. I want to say Georges, but I don't think it's Georges. I mean, Pascal comes later. Bernard. It's Bernard. 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 Um, That we realise just how much that Andre is in the jaws of a kind of relentless familial and religious system I mean, I I just wanted to read this. I mean, this extraordinary uh, quote from I think at the midpoint of of the novel, uh, where Andre says this: "They teach you in catechism to respect your body, so selling your body in marriage must be as bad as selling it on the street." And it's a token of profound insight. I mean this sort of searing intelligence i can't imagine me having the the intellectual grip to yeah. think that uh, that as that a teenager yes, at that I age think. yet this sort of sense of of the body as hers and yet utterly not hers yeah, yeah. yes yes and yet somehow she holds on to her faith doesn't she where where yes. sylvie sylvie can walk away and i think that's very interesting and sylvie seems to walk away quite unscarred um but there's just no way that andre can let go um did you find that believable i think that's that's i think that's a good question and i think this is where we come to one of the the weaknesses in this as a novella rather than as a fully formed novel. I mean, I, I, I've described this, this, this book as like sketches of, from a genius painter ahead of the Mm. fully worked up portrait as it were. And speaking from the point of view of, of someone with a, a lively faith that's, I guess, travelled in the other direction, Sarah. I've gone from being an atheist to a to a person of faith. I feel that that in the the both of those those stories, both of Sylvie and Andre, don't quite capture the subtleties and the nuances. The way in which, I mean, certainly for Sylvie, there is we're very clear. It's very clear that she has this realization that she doesn't believe yeah. in God, and that's it. And I I think my experience of being around people 
who lose their faith at whatever age is that there are endless echoes. I mean, Robert Graves, the, the poet says that the thing that remains for those who lose their faith is um, the belief that Jesus is the ideal man. You know, that if you've had a faith, you will, you will always keep, keep that. And there's this sort of sense of, there's an inescapability if you've been formed in a certain way. And certainly in Roman Catholicism, I think that's a huge thing. I mean, as for Andre's persistence, I guess I find that more plausible in the sense that she's someone who, because she's negotiating uh, strictures on her life that are really almost difficult to, in, impossible to, 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 to slew off, as it were, that that sort of sense of consistency of the obviousness of God and religion and its rituals seems of a piece. I mean, it's almost as if I always imagine that if Andre had lived and grew into the kind of woman that she might have been, I, I suspect that she would have thrown off a whole load of stuff in one go. Mm -hmm. at a later time because she's holding everything together including god and yeah. religion yes. i mean what's your view sarah i mean what do you um, think i felt it was a bit too black and white that particular aspect of it and i and of course we know that simone is writing this many many years after this loss of faith and maybe she has come to terms with it but it seemed to me slightly unbelievable that she would just be able to walk away just like that um so quickly and have no echoes no shadows no nothing yes. that seemed that seemed a bit extreme and again I don't know this of course we don't know what what she's still all these years later projecting on this young woman who meant so much to her, her but yeah I, I wasn't quite sure I wasn't quite sure and that leads me to another question which is we know that this was one of several attempts that Simone de Beauvoir made to try and capture in words this friend and the story of this friendship and was, you know, still not quite sure. I suppose my question is, do you think she succeeds? Do do we feel, I like the idea of these brush strokes of somebody, but, you know, I don't know. I'm, I was left thinking, I just wonder, I just wonder how real a painting it was, or is it more about survivor guilt and more about other things? I don't know. What was your feeling about the success of it overall? I mean, that's an inter interesting point about survivor guilt. I'd love to hear you say more about that. But, but my response, I think, is to say I I'm left with a tantalising sense of of mystery. There is, I, I, I feel like we have a a play of of surfaces, and in one sense, there's a there's a truth to that. That sort of impressionistic element that that's here that because sylvie simone is wanting to capture not just her friend but the intensity of her feeling for her friend which of course that creates a whole set of biases doesn't it it, it creates a very much a perspective but at the same time she wants to kind of penetrate to the truth she gets caught in a series of impressions. And I mean, the simple answer is, no, I don't think it's entirely successful, but I love how intriguing it is. Mm. And I think that if, if, 
if I were to say it was successful in one regard, it is in that it makes me wish that I had known Elizabeth Lacoigne Jaja too. I I would have loved to have known her in a way actually that I'd rather know her than than Sylvie or Simone really because of the very the very strong sense of mystery really yes yes that's fascinating that's really interesting I think that is I mean that's a huge tribute to the writing and I did want to say something about the style because it's so elegant and spare and I I imagine it's difficult to tell when I we haven't I don't know if you've read it in the original I haven't but I think probably has been beautifully translated um, by Lauren Elkin. That was my sense. I had a real, a real feeling of a sort of spareness, and I wondered, I wondered if that had appealed to you, the style in which it's written. Absolutely. I I haven't read it in the the French. I I'd love to. I think that this translation makes me want to, even though I'm, as as my French sister in law would tell tell you, I'm just a terrible French scholar etc etc speaker the spareness is remarkable and i i say that with a, just a sense of my own inadequacy as as a prose writer i mean as someone who's who's written a novel who who writes a lot of prose i'm very conscious that in my writing i'm i'm often beguiled by beauty and what I mean, what that usually means is that I get tangled and a little bit lost. And the bravery of spareness, of a kind of Spartan, elegant prose is, for me, the evidence of, of a really superior intelligence mm -hmm. at work that has a mastery mm -hmm. of language. So thinking about the fact that um, Sylvie walks away from her religious faith in what seems to be quite a dramatic way in this book, how do you think, um, how does that fit in with the real life experience of Simone from what you know about her as a philosopher? Well, I wonder if, if the dramatic, sharp-edged nature of it reflects the influence of French existentialist philosophy and, and of Sartre in particular, he he had this view that um, choice is everything, decision is everything. You know, we faced with a situation that um, because we have radical freedom, that is the absolute and nature, I mean, the way he put it rather pompously is that existence precedes essence existence proceeds that we are thrown into the world utterly free and that we are not defined by anything that we you know that we've uh, in inherited from god or fr from nature and i just wonder if that moment in the novel subtly maybe even unconsciously reflects the influence of that ph philosophy that instead of of sylvie de Beauvoir living with the echo of the formation that they've had, that because they have this clarity, that's it. And they're over and they're free and they're living into their freedom. 
it sounds, as I say this, you know, Sarah, it sounds utterly absurd. And I, I mean, I'd be interested in your response, but, but you, you can, can you imagine how powerful that message was in the late fifties, sixties, and into the seventies when both de Beauvoir and Sartre became incredibly famous yeah. as these advocates of freedom. And at a time when there was this movement away from the old determinations of religion and, and nature and, 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 you know, the assigned roles for women, for example. I mean, I think it makes complete sense. I mean, the whole, the, the sort of, we've said the main theme of the book is friendship, but the other huge theme is choice, isn't it? And lack of it. Um, and I, I've, as you speak, I find myself thinking if she'd written this novel nearer the time, it would have been very, very different. So this, you know, it would be, this is this is the novel that is written with what is it, you know, thirty years looking back. Yes. Um, so it's completely different. It's yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And she's able to say this very black and white. You know, it was this this stranglehold here over here, and then there's the rest of us over here, and we we sort of walk free. So that makes complete sense to me. Fascinating. So we've been discussing The Inseparables by Simone de Beauvoir, which is published by Vintage. And you can read Rachel's introductory essay and some questions for discussion in the Church Times. But finally, Rachel, we always ask our contributors to recommend something else that they um, have read recently that you think our readers might enjoy. And I know you've got something for us. I have a classic, a genuine, absolute classic for for the, the, the listeners Persuasion by Jane Austen. Gosh, I could wax lyrical, Sarah. You may have to stop me. I mean, do you want to ask it why? I mean, <laughs> well, I do want to ask why. And the other thing that immediately comes into my mind is did you watch the relatively new film um, that was, um, I'm trying to think, was it Netflix? That it's was Netflix. I, I can't bring myself can't to. No, I can't no. bring myself to watch it. And, and I feel professionally i i i should i mean just full disclosure here sarah sarah that um persuasion along with austin's other novels has been much on my mind recently because i'm just finishing off the manuscript for a new lent book that's out with canterbury for lent 24 called uh, a truth universally acknowledged and it's 40 days of lent with jane austen and uh no that that netflix version uh turns Anne Elliot into the most absurd, almost wisecracking uh, it, heroine. It, it is bizarre. It's persuasion mixed with Fleabag. It is very, very odd indeed. Um, bizarre and extraordinary. But then if you can make a sort of zombie film out of Jane Austen, I guess you can do anything. But I suppose the immediate question is how, if you're writing this Lent book, which I can't wait to read, how did you pick Persuasion rather than one of the others? Has it always been your favourite or is there something at the moment that's striking a chord for you? No, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that like many people, for pure pleasure, I will go to Pride and Prejudice. It's just sheer joy, sheer delight for, I I guess... It's it's insight and maturity. I do love Emma. I've grown to love Mansfield Park, which I know is controversial. Mm. But Persuasion, uh, on the, the my most recent reread, absolutely bowled me over in the sense that I thought, gosh, Anne Elliot feels like a, a heroine for our times, actually, that there is this 
the, the maturity of her, of course, and it, it is easily, I think, the most mature of Austen's novels. I mean, it's been described as the first Victorian novel or the, the first proper 19th century novel because you have in these characters a sort of sense of negotiating disappointment, of negotiating losing that first opportunity and yet somehow finding a way through and it not being done in a in a kind of paint by numbers romance mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. done through this authentic negotiation of of the facts of of what it is to be a human being of how and sorry spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it but you know the the anger of of captain Went wentworth at having been uh let down by anne when they were younger and yet them meeting one another as older people eight years later and negotiating that sense of abiding love, which always moves me, that sense of love existing through time despite everything. And yet having to be honest about the fact that disappointment and frustration can build so readily into resentment and we, we can't just we can't go back we can never go back yeah. and and i think in a time such as this having we you know we're still in the midst in some senses of a pandemic but having gone through all of that trauma that what does it mean to be persistent in love what does it mean to look back and maybe look longingly back on something that was, but know that it never can never be again. But what can be might yet still yeah. be right and hopeful. That's a great note to end on. It, it reminds me of that wonderful um, UA fan thought poem about um, Atlas and WD-40 and, oh, you know, yes. and, and the kind of love that, you know, deals with the car tax or whatever, um, that is just, you know, really, really goes deep. That is that is rather wonderful. Um, that's a great note to end on. So thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you for your time. It's a great pleasure talking um, fiction with you. And thank you very much for drawing our attention to the inseparables which i really would recommend to our readers i really enjoyed it thank you very much for for your time today thank you sarah thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.